This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut, Babette. We would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, from whose land we are broadcasting at Radio 3CR, and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. Dr Elizabeth Bolton is a former Army Major in the Australian Defence Force. She served in East Timor and Iraq, and then as a civilian expert on logistics in Africa and the Pacific Islands. In her PhD, she developed the idea of Plan E. It is a new use of military thinking to first understand the hyper threat of climate change, not as a threat multiplier, as we've heard before, making everything worse, but as a hyper threat in itself. So this is original thinking, listeners. I hope you'll bear with us. This is going to be a very interesting interview. Welcome, Elizabeth. Tell us what it's like where you are. Oh, hi, Vivian. Um, thank you very much for the opportunity to talk. Yes, and I, I pay my respects to the Jaja Wurrung, who um, the, the local um, Indigenous people of my area and acknowledge that these are, these lands were not um, ceded. Um, yeah, I'm in Creswick, Victoria, and it's pretty cold. We had a, a, a hard frost this morning, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, let's dive in to this very hefty topic. I've been thinking a lot after reading all your um, links that you sent me, which are really worthwhile. And I've been thinking about war. And of course, it's based on having an enemy. And you describe climate change as the enemy. Its allies are the fossil fuel companies and existing institutions like banks, which all over the world are being protected by police and military forces. Look, you served in oil rich East Timor and Iraq. Could you explain why these groups? should change sides you know they should be our allies not mm. yeah and I, I well I just would preface that comment by saying that there's this long history that they are our allies and providers of security so you know after the world war ii rebuild it was all about resource industries and and getting resources and and of course in the major wars um oil was crucial to victory, thus became linked in people's psyche with um, security and safety for the nation. So perhaps it was initially conceived as serving the nation to, you know, secure oil and resources. But, you know, we now know that that um, oil is, you know, charging this um, a pathway down to hot um, hothouse earth. So it's, it's a complete reversal of the link between oil and security. Um, and we're now, you know, and, and that has implications for military strategy, which if, if you look at, you know, the Iraq war, this I think this is something that I found uh, really leapt out at me was that while the Iraq war was going on, um, at the exact same time, we had all these climate conferences and Al Gore and Copenhagen and all the rest of it, but rarely was the, the link, link made between uh, climate and what was happening in Iraq. And, and so this was some of the incongruence, I think, about how our, our grand strategy around security is, has been in the past. Well, look, I think yeah. you were very shocked that there's no actual global security plan for the threat that we're facing. It's environmental threat and climate threat. And so you've published this plan E, and I'll tell listeners the E stands for Earth, Emergency, Everyone, Everything and Everywhere. So in a nutshell, what is your plan? Yeah, um, basically, the plan is um, is that we centre um, the what I call the hyper threat of climate environmental change as the the major threat. And what uh, this is distinguished, for example, from the UN Sustainable Development Goals approach, where they you know they have seventeen goals that they're trying to currently achieve. So a, a big thing is to actually prioritise, and it doesn't mean negating all those other goals, but we. Um, have a whole of society effort towards the one goal, which is essentially our our, our survival <laughs> and the, the survival of planetary life. So that's the first thing is the the a, a clear prioritized mission. The second thing is um, for mobilization, which is different from militarization. 
and and I've basically said that we can reimagine um, mobilization entirely. It doesn't. It's nothing like people having to suddenly go to some boot camp somewhere and do drill or anything like that. Um, there's actually a whole series of layered concepts which I, I can go through later if you wish. But mobilization is that the, the the key thing. But the other the other sort of I guess the linchpin is that when you change your focus of your security, what, what that actually means is that all those intelligence agencies, all that security sector, all of that has to pivot. And historically, one, one of the things we've, we've got a bit of a uh, bind at the moment is that historically, that we've had this thing called systems maintenance, which is where tools of force like the CIA or the US military are used to prop up and, and keep these global extractive supply chains going um, on the belief that this is good for the nation and the citizens and so forth. So inadvertently, we have provided military support to the resource extractive sector, which a lot of people call the military industrial complex. So essentially, I'm arguing that our security um, focus goes away from the resource eagles, as I call them, to the citizenry. So instead of supporting those big corporates we it turns to supporting the citizen and it's almost a citizenry reclaiming the security forces for itself yeah. um based on the idea that actually the citizenry pay the taxes they pay for the security forces and also they provide the security forces they provide their children you know their husbands their wives to serve in it so they are the security force so they they should not be serving Excon Mobile or so forth. They don't sign up to join support Excon Mobile. Um, they they sign up to serve the population. So yeah. it's 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 about realigning security with the population's needs. I'm sure yeah. that it's so welcome to the majority of people because we <laughs> see you know armies going off to unexplained wars really and coming back very damaged and really it's an old model you sort of feel it's too late now in this century to be mm. doing it that way but i see a kind of around the world civil society groups like armies really hurling themselves at gas pipelines coal mines fighting off new oil for example in the arctic and you know we interview them here and to me it's more like a disarmament exercise as we take away the social license of fossil fuels and logging companies and try and build the alternatives. And I know military minds are turning to the dangers of climate chaos. There's quite a lot of talk you know, about security, but isn't there a danger of militarizing the climate crisis? If you give it over to them, they'll just think in the old ways that they've always thought. Yeah, that's exactly it. And, and you know, there has been um, two decades really of what's called securitization theory and studies of what happens when you securitize certain civil perceived as civil um, issues that, you know, gives power to certain groups and there's going to be this top-down draconian response and it, it's filled with sort of terror and horror, really. Um, and, and that, you know, that probably is their template of how they do things. And I guess I've actually said, well, it doesn't have to be a, a top-down approach to save ourselves. Um, we, we don't have to do a draconian, we can design it how we want and we can start with a blank page. And in fact, when you analyze how to fight the hyper threat, um, in fact, the obvious thing is that the, the effort has to be bottom up and local localized approach. But of course you need some, uh, you know, state involvement for fast trains and all, you know, those sort of big, big infrastructure projects. But, um, you know, I, I'm basically saying we don't, we don't have to have that just because we say it's a threat doesn't mean we have to have a top down draconian um, we can reimagine the whole thing. But yeah, I think the, the, the main problem we have at the moment is that on the one hand, you know, and we see Biden's just latest incredibly ambitious climate um, strategy he's just released, which, you know, has a wish list of everything anyone would want. Um, but at the very, very same time that that's happening, so you've got in one sphere a whole lot of action on climate, but on the other sphere we've got this accelerating um, narrative around a potential World War III type scenario with Russia, Iran, China, you know, the, the rest versus the West. So these, these two things can't happen at the same time because um, World War III, even if it didn't happen, but it was just incredible um, investment of money and resources and technology and engineering capacity, et cetera, um, would derail the capacity to fight the hyper threat. And if World War III happened, of course, 
proposed as being for our security would actually undermine all of our security. So we're still, I think at the grand strategy level, we're still incoherent because on one hand, we're pursuing the climate peaceful path. And then on the other hand, we're escalating, getting ready for some big showdown with Russia and China. So yeah. it's sort of quite ridiculous, really. <laughs> yes. And it's hijacked the attention of the world. You know, we've gone from COVID now to China and Russia and 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 we've missed out on climate, which is pervasive. And this is what you're trying to get at. You quote um, Klaus Witz, you know, the military thinker on knowing the threat. You have to know the enemy. And, and we can't know at this numinous thing, climate change and its caused by us anyway. How do we attack it? So I think that's we're still at that problematical level of not really getting it. At the moment, I want to know about emergency reactions. At the moment, the military is appearing in climate emergencies, but they to me, I might sound a bit ungrateful, but they seem to arrive a bit late for floods and fire disasters. And the police are still brutalising protesters who are trying to, to change the system and stop the flow of fossil fuel society. I've been to many court cases for these young people, very usually very young people. And the, the response is pretty heavy now, getting heavier in New South Wales. So how could government reorient the defence sector in a, a, a sort of a support role? for civil society groups that are already working hard and they need help. Yeah, as I guess I envisage that we have to think far bigger than we've thought before. Because And even the Biden's ambitions concept, it's, it's sort of doing what we already do, but in a cleaner way. It's still essentially got that idea. But Plan E is, is even more radical. So essentially, if you talk to a lot of defence people, of course, all around the world, militaries are helping out with floods and all that sort of stuff. So this, all this is is um, responding to a threat. It's not actually decreasing the threat. So it's not sustainable in the long term. And, you know, they're not properly, if you look at it, if you took a, a military, you know, I was a military logistician, if you took a sort of hard practical military approach, military spent a lot of time training people in particular skill sets and they do courses and they're kept current and a lot of investment and time is put into ensuring we have the skill sets and the capabilities that we need. But th we, what we actually have to do is change all those skill sets. And, and I, I'm suggesting a sort of civil um, disaster response capability in communities that is ready, that knows the local area and so forth. But they have to be properly trained. They need to do all the sort of things that you do in the military where you do exercises and scenarios and people know their roles. And like any emergency thing, you know, if you think of para paramedics, you know, you have it's not draconian to have set procedures and responses. No. That's what emergency people do. And you have to have all that prepared before the emergency hits. And it takes time to train people, you know, train for just, for example, we, we had a, a, a massive flood in Creswick and suddenly we needed people who could operate chainsaws everywhere because there was um, trees down all over the roads. So it's just a simple thing, but you need, a certain quantity of people who are properly and safely trained in chainsaws and who have chainsaws. Um, but that's a micro thing, but there's so many of those things. So you have to take an organised approach. And, um, yeah, essentially I'm suggesting that we we develop a, a type of a, a civil capability um, of, you know, professionalising the SES and um, CFA. And these become permanent jobs for people. Um, so it's actually re completely reimagining what our human, what our security forces look like. Yeah. Well, as yeah. an expert on logistics and supply chains, do you see more security coming out of improved localization of water, food, and energy? We've had a few people on the radio talking about localization, relocalizing. Do you think there's improved security in that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And um, in Plan E, there's a thing called the Home Force, which actually acknowledges that anyone who does those sort of local things like run community gardens or even people who, who grow their own food and repairs, local repairs and all of that sort of stuff, they are actually making a massive contribution to the hyper response. So, in fact, they should be rewarded or paid for it. As like So in the future, there's actually a job is people who work in the community because, yeah, they, they save all those emissions and impacts of those long supply chains. So that should be acknowledged. And so and also I'm sort of thinking around that, you know, per, parental care and people being in the community and stuff that, you know, I guess in feminism in terms of um, care work should be paid. But it, it's sort of building on that idea in, in a bit more that, the, the home force is um, crucial, crucial work to 
that security at the household and community level. So it should be acknowledged and rewarded. Yeah, well, I had in the drought, which I suppose we've now forgotten, but you know, it's not so long ago, I had Aboriginal people here pleading for water tanks, something as practical as that, water tanks out in Western Please. New South Wales. The, the Darling River dried up, the fish turned belly up. It was horrific. It was really a terrible scene. And, and yet they, they had sick people who couldn't shower in the water. It was, it'd become toxic. They had to have water imported in on trucks from Sydney and, and all sorts of volunteer groups all just threw themselves into action. But that should have been anticipated and hmm. prepared for. Yeah, the, the worry is that we're, you know, I think there was an article out today by Ben Cubby about that West Australia is so late to the electric vehicles thing, for example, that now there's going to be this long queue in the world and we're going to be at the end of the queue. And that the problem is if we don't um, get moving quickly, we'll be so sort of hit by the hyper threat that we it, it will impair our capacity to respond. So one of um, plan E is actually just the planning phase and it's envisaged as only five months from, from now till the end of um, end of this year. And then we go into plan F, which is fast and furious for four years and just to hit it really hard because the quicker we move, the better the whole outcome is. I'm, I'm essentially saying that one of the things I would, you know, hope to, I did put a petition into the government, but I think it you know, in the proper federal parliament petition site, but I think it got rejected for a technicality, so I'll have to work on that. But I'm essentially saying that of that enormous defence budget, some of that should be allocated to Plan E contingency planning because we don't have much time because we have to kick off Plan F in, in January. But the, And also just to, just to highlight how this differs from your sort of draconian top-down concept is that I'm saying that this planning and response, response planning period this next five months should be a whole of society capability so it doesn't just sit with the security sector that in fact everyone has to be involved in the planning and the conceptualization in their areas but we can actually use defense people have um, various planning methodologies which they they use already with the you know when they work collaboratively with the um, the bushfires and, and the floods people they apply these methods so we, we have to skill people up in these meth these planning methods and then you know, work, work with them to develop the plans for each region. So you, it's basically, it's not a top-down, it's, it's um, actually asking the people to step up and be involved in the planning. Street CR Community Radio, 855am. You say that taming the hyper threat is an enormous governance job and you see some governments, including Australia, as being captured by the fossil fuel sector. And we hear this, you know, state capture quite frequently now. I don't think a lot of people know what it means, but a lot they're going to have, have to work on reclaiming the democracy because mm. it is captured at the moment. And we only had to see the big Santos gas ads at COP26 on the Australian pavilion to see what, you know, who their friends yeah. were. And uh, I think you said in your paper, I thought it was interesting, you said governments are a bit like the victim of domestic abuse. And there's something called the Duluth model. Could you explain how understanding that would help us rebuild our democracy so that governments are strong enough to do all of this? Yeah. Um, well, when I was thinking we have, because again, like as you mentioned at the start, the, the first thing is understanding the unique nature in which this threat emerges which are, are, and I'm basically saying some of this, this decision making and is you've got to, it's got to be understood not as an economic or policy thing but as decisions that are going to kill millions of people um, so there is a violent it's a new form of violence but it doesn't look like what we it's a sort of person with a suit and a tie as a CEO who's highly respected and so forth so then I thought well what what sort of models um, or concepts are appropriate to this type of threat? Just tell us a few of the, you know, like yep. coercive control, for example, yep. you know, someone who's doing that is intimidating the person so they're incapable of acting and the only way is to get out. But if in terms of a government, how do, how do you see yeah. that as being helpful? The, the, types, the types of control that this, um, for example, if you think of the fossil fuel sector's control on the Australian government, is that it, if it controls the media... Um, you, I think we could possibly see with um, when Rudd and so forth wanted to have a tax on mining that there was an immediate attack 
and they essentially removed um, a government because they wanted to tax the mining industry through media assassination. So that's, that is one of their, to take out a leader and to um, vilify and abuse and humiliate the person in the media is, is one tactic. And so once we understand that this is how they're operating, then if the public has a greater understanding of this, we, when we see that somebody speaks up about it and they get immediately vilified in the media, we're alert to this tactic. So it's less effective. Yeah. So one of the things is raising awareness of what's happening. And um, I actually think that the community are almost naturally adjusting. And you see all everywhere they've got all these independent, you know, the John Mendew and other independent media sources because people have already worked this out and, um, and they're talking amongst themselves. But, yeah, I think it just helps give us clarity about how they're operating. And, and yeah, I, th I, I would, you know, for example, if I was the threat planner for this, I would get in a whole lot of people who are experts in domestic violence and coercive control and get them into the planning team. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. of course, one of the things is minimising, denying, gaslighting the population. Oh, you're being an extremist. It's, um, you obviously see the abuse, as you mentioned, of the, um, the people who are protesting. They are being abused for speaking up on some most fundamental rights. So they're... That's an abusive situation. Yeah, well, yes. I thought that was an interesting angle. And I did see before the change of government, Anthony Albanese one day in Parliament and there was Scott Morrison and Barnaby Joyce, both sort of in tandem, you know, attacking him with the same words. It's as if someone had written their script and there they were attacking him and he just had his head down, just letting it blow over him because no point in retaliating. Oh, wow, that's an abusive situation. Glad there's a lot more women and independents in the Parliament now that maybe... That won't be tolerated, let's hope. But yeah, the government, we have to reclaim their strength. They have to reclaim their strength. All alone, I'm lit up by a telephone. The world is just a broken home. Are you listening, hello? Get your free COVID-19 booster dose if you received your second dose of a COVID-19 vaccination at least three months ago. To book an appointment, visit australia.gov.au or call 1-800-020-080 and select 8 if you need an interpreter. Visit health.gov.au or speak to your doctor to find out when you are eligible. Authorised by the Australian Government, Canberra. 
a 3CR supporter. Look, um, let's keep moving because there's so much in your paper. I want to cover it. I once interviewed a doctor in East Timor and he was very clear that Australia had stolen oil from the poorest country in the world at that stage. And I think there's a huge legacy of colonialism, which is still keeping people poor and subdued, frightened. And this outdated system is only fueling climate disaster. How would you recalibrate our relations with countries that we continue to exploit? I mean, that's a whole mm. world order change. Yeah. Um, well, I guess it's probably fairly radical as well, is that I'm actually moving away from the UN approach, which I think has become and is, is, is viewed by a lot of people as a sort of Western model that appropriates certain narratives, but still, you know, it's headquartered in Washington, in New York, and it, it, it's, it, you know, I think there was a show on last night about um, corruption within the UN and its ineffectiveness, but I, I know a lot of the goals are good, but um, anyway, so I move away from that and the focus is actually moving towards what I call eco-multilateralism or eco-regions. So we we move away from human-defined boundaries to um, we, so our local ecological region and work in that area. And again, it's, it's very difficult to work globally and get, get away from all this centralised global control, which I think has a whole lot of um, totalitarian risks in it that we don't we haven't really fully unpacked and I don't think it's just conspiracy theorists who see that, but I think it limits our scope of ideas and options if we just go with that model because it shuts down other creative thought of how else we can approach this problem. But, yeah, I, I, I think we have to, uh, um, the Western world has to confront um, the damage we've done and pay reparations and that we would have part of our international relations and our deployable hyper-response force would be... Um, deployable capabilities and skilling up um, people in those other regions in, in hot, you know, their hyper response capabilities, you know, these eco rebuild squads and all of that, you know, so much training has gone on to prepare and develop, raise these sort of new capabilities. So reparations are part of that, but part of it can be done like, like one of our assets in our country is actually our tradies. We have, we had this building boom and I, I sort of equate it to how World War One. it just so happened that we had a whole lot of blokes who worked on the farm who all knew how to use rifles, who were all fairly fit, and they just happened to be perfect soldiers. And we're in the same situation. We just happened to have a nation of tradies and people who love renovating and building things, and they are the, like the new bronzed sort of Anzacs in a way because we can, not only will they rebuild Australia, but we can deploy them to help um, rebuild and farming technologies and things in, in our region to make as part of those reparations. So it's not necessarily just cash, but it, it could be um, training support um, to help skill up and so forth. So I think there's, you know, that hot, but, but yeah, basically I think we have to, we have, the West has to um, acknowledge the harm done and make reparations. Yeah. Well, um, let's get back now to the enemy idea. Um, you just imagine you, your plan is in being executed and you've poached a lot of its workforce, you know, the fossil fuel workforce and rebuilt places like Baghdad and Mosul as beacons in your book, is everyone, the beacons of Islamic eco-design and um, as well as a, as a sign of, as you say, reparation. And you've res restored wetlands, forests and habitats. You've done rewilding and rebuilding that doesn't need coal, oil or gas. You've arrested those corrupt, well, I imagine you were even, so you're actually going to arrest them, but that sounds like it's going to be, you know, that people are going to be seen as climate criminals who were not before. So I imagine you're arresting corrupt crew of advertisers, media and financiers. But will you use your military to oversee for example, the dismantling of oil wells and guard against illegal logging and illegal coal mines. It's going to be still a lot of pushback. And um, even if it doesn't happen exactly according to your plan, do you think the military will be needed to do that? Yeah, also I, I should say I'm not, I'm not imagining the military as the military is now. I, I'm completely um, saying we reinvent our entire security forces so you would have um, one of the things is you have a planetary security force. And, you know, when you look at places like um, 
at the moment is what is what I would say pitched at the grand strategy level. So that means that a whole lot of detailed local planning for particular contexts has to occur, and which will vary in many, many, many situations. So if, if you think of one of the worst areas of um, animal poaching in, Ameri- in, Af- in Africa, you're going to have quite a different solution there versus probably protecting Australian wetlands. So you, you see what I mean? And, and each nation would the people of that nation would would be consulted and they would design their appropriate response so you know for example in the congo you do you do have um, park rangers with um, weapons and but they also have um, you know drones and all sorts of that type of technology to protect against guerrilla poaching and so forth so i think each situation has to be is very localized um, but yeah, when it comes to dismantling oil rigs, um, just say, say, just let's just give it a hypothetical situation. There, there is one group called the Point Force, which is the economic and legal group. So that all those people who are already developing animal law, environmental law, you know, right to a clean planet and all that stuff, they're already developing a whole stack of legal mechanisms. So they would hit that particular oil company that's planning to, you know, not exceed their limits with all those legal mechanisms and so forth and then if they continue to um, operate that oil plant and if they then we might consider sending in some form of force to dismantle it and that particular sort of force might have to again this is where I'm saying the role of tradies it may have to have um, various sort of diesel mechanics and mechanics who know how to dismantle an oil rig because soldiers won't know how to do that Um, so but they might they might be given you know, some sort of armed protection while that group goes in to dismantle it. Um, so, you know, that's that's how I'd imagine it. But I, I'd imagine it's a scaled approach and that at every stage you're trying to work with the sector to change voluntarily, but in some situations. And I, I think we have to prepare for the fact that we're going to have a black oil market and we're going to have, and some of those people might hire militia to protect, you know, all all that sort of stuff. We haven't really fully unpacked that, but that could happen. Hang on, why do you say that black black market in oil? Is that already? Well, we already have a black market in oil um, happening at the moment, which is like a legal trade. And, you know, so um, we have these very, very powerful um, global criminal groups, criminal cartels who who they have portfolios of drugs, illegal logging and, you know, all sorts of things that they deal in. Like they're very wealthy. They have helicopter attack attacks. Um, vehicles and all this sort of stuff um so they these big criminal cartels um might start you know illegally running black oil oil and have an illegal market so then you know you may need a response to that but i, I would be hoping that again you, you try 100 sorts of um soft approaches to um convince those people and this is where the, the cultural and operation visibility and knowability is really important is to have people want to willingly participate in the hyper response a lot of those criminals who work for those multinational criminal organizations and they they intersperse with terrorism animal poaching the whole lot they um don't have jobs so sometimes the only people who are employing them are those criminal cartels so you know they can get a get safety for their family by killing an elephant yeah. um so you know we need to give them a viable other option is is, and that's part of that's part of the strategy as well. Oh, it's wonderful! It's like reclaiming people from the most terrible jobs and giving them a new a new future. And you also see a future for veterans, you know, army veterans who've been damaged by warfare, given a, a viable opportunity to repair. Is that mm. one of your? Ideas? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, in countries other than Australia, there are far more. You know, we're really a pretty peaceful. <laughs> considering the rest of the world we're pretty peaceful but so much of the world is is has there are so many veterans and people with trauma through through conflict particularly in the middle east and all that so this is a a traumatized group but you know there is all this research about the healing effects of um of gardening and doing and building and and that sort of thing and dealing with a lot of especially um moral injury which is yeah. when people feel they've done the wrong thing or, you know, it's got contra. So, yeah, so there is an opportunity. And even just with defense, traditional military people is that they do have all these skill sets and 
those um, what, what we, because we have a hierarchical military, what often happens is that only a few people get to the top, and so that means there's a whole stack of people who um, their promotion prospects are ended, and where do they go next? And so they, there's an idea that they can actually have a structured transition into the hyper-response force where they can actually use those skills to help the communities in that planning, risk response. And it's even it's not just um, the planning, but it's also things about how do you act despite uncertainty and fear? How do you create morale despite um, terrible circumstances? So I think a lot of those softer skills about, uh, you know, the fact that humans can we can persevere through scary situations and you know how, how the, the army has a whole lot of ideas about how you how you get people to come together during fearful times and and keep moving forward wonderful well look we're talking to dr elizabeth bolton and after the break um we're going to come back to have a little bit more talking about her plan e as you can see it's very ambitious listeners and i'd like you to look up the 3cr um, climate action website because you'll need to read a bit to give some background to what she's saying now thank you elizabeth we'll see you after the break thank you extraordinary show of mass defiance in the Baltic region of the Soviet Union. Whenever you give free speech to people, then things get out of hand. This singing together, this was our power. If 20,000 people start to sing one song, then you just cannot shut them up. It's impossible. What role can singing play when a nation is faced with annihilation by its neighbors? Can culture hold a people together? The small country of Estonia has faced these questions. to Dr. Elizabeth Bolton. She's a former army major in the ADF and now her plan E to combat climate change has been published by the US Marine Corps University in Virginia. We were talking about the military used to stop illegal logging and poaching and so on. But meanwhile, a lot of environmental and climate damage is quite legal. The new environment minister has just refused to approve Clive Palmer's Central Queensland coal mine, but this is rare. So Liz, from a military viewpoint, how would you outmaneuver all these coal, oil and gas projects which are racing to make profits before the hesitant world catches on and makes it illegal to do what they're doing? Yeah, I think <clears throat> this, this is one of the main advantages of a threat framing is is just in terms of winning the, the narrative battle and the perception battle is that it, one of the ways this this activity has got under the radar so long and be seen as policy and just economic and quite neutral sort of activity is because it, the violence in it is not made apparent so one of the things is that we have to is this deeper argument and understanding about how violence killing harm destruction is being enacted in this century and how it's being caused so so one of the strategies is making it abundantly clear that we're not just talking about an economic thing we are talking about mass killing 
And so that, that is a stronger argument. So that's a, a consciousness thing and a thing about social licence and so forth. But it, it also supports all those other people who are, who are promoting governance tools and legal, you know, animal law, environmental law, law to a safe, safe planet and so on. So it, it, it's a bit more oomph for them. If we did take a climate emergency approach and say, we're now going hell for leather to save the planet, one of the advantages of a security lens is that it can override economic actors and it can say, well, we trump you in this situation because security is more important than economics. And, and so one of the things is it doesn't have to be a, a terrible calamity doing this because we have one of the ideas is that we develop this thing called the point force point being because it's the pointiest aspect of the problem which is the economic and legal dimension mm. is that there are it's not my area of expertise but there are stacks and I'm sure you probably know them better than I people coming up with innovative economic solutions yeah. for a fairer system to you know degrowth and so on so those people get in and are empowered under a security mandate to recraft the economy um, and and set, you know, or reset all the levers that, that make it um, help us achieve the overall mission. Um, and one of the, the ways that could be done is with this plan E being fast and furious, you could even just have a temporary situation where you, you say, okay, for four years, we, we're going to have this sort of arrangement, which also involves, involves a universal basic income and so forth, while we more carefully reconstruct the economy um, so that that supports planetary life. The idea of having a grand strategy means that you bring in a whole lot of new experts to the table who are yeah. now empowered, who are struggling to be heard, but they, they're now given the thumbs up sort of thing. Yeah. yeah, I like the idea of new experts, especially those who've been trained in the grassroots, because at the moment, those, you know, I see a lot of Aboriginal people, for example, hanging on, you know, doing ceremony up at Galilee Basin, just doing this ceremony round the clock. I think they've been going for 14 months up at, uh, at the Wangan and Jagalingu territory, just trying to stop that Adani mine from, you know, it's a delay mm -hmm. tactic, but there it's very sincere for them because that is really a holistic thing, their whole land they're protecting. But that's that's just hanging on. You know, I, I admire how long they've been hanging on, but you know, they need reinforcements because people get exhausted and, and, mm. and supporters get exhausted. And <laughs> I had a message from Adrian Baragaba. The Wangan and Jagalingu people, they're inviting us to come up to their land up in Queensland between August the 22nd and the 26th. It's called the Wadanangu Celebration. You can go to the website Standing Our Ground or you can look at the Wangan and Jagalingu website. And now here's Cody McAvoy to invite you personally and tell you why it will be so good if you could go there and connect with Indigenous people who are protecting their land and our land from the onslaught of this new Adani Bravas Carmichael coal mine. What a mole, Najunari Kuri. Nay, Yena, Jagalingu, Yambanani. Yena, Waranangu. Hello, welcome. My name is Cody. We're here on Jagalingu country, and this is Wanarangu, which means the talking. What we have here is a sacred ceremonial ring, and we also have two humpies that are placed here that's there for talking. One is for us, and one is for our visitors. Whoever that might be, that might be the government officials, that might be our neighbours that want to come and have a chat. It could be for tribes from further along that want to come and treaty with us. This place is open for everybody to come along to come and support what we're doing here. We're doing something that connects Aboriginal people together and also showing the government that we're stronger together. We've hit a crucial point in our life. Adani has hit the groundwater. There is a real threat to Dungmabula draining now. We need your help. We need you to come out. We're inviting you. Please come out, show your support. To finish, I think your vision for the world's military is to create the stable conditions that would allow 
civilians to undertake this huge work that we've been talking about. And you have suggested a global climate emergency peace treaty. Well, there's a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty out there with the last COP26, they, they spoke up about that there, but you want a climate emergency peace treaty, which would allow nations to focus on preventing the worst happening. But meanwhile, the media is distracted by the war in Ukraine and China's posturing in the Taiwan Straits. I wonder, will you raise this idea of a global climate emergency treaty, maybe at COP27 or COP28? I'd love to raise it earlier. <laughs> um, well, 27 is in November. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think... I, it you know really has to happen this year. I I personally think, but um, yeah, I, I'm still trying to work out how to get get that idea out there. I, I think the petition. I think one of the things I'm looking at is to get a petition online or or something like that. Um, but I, I'm also imagining that it, it might it might come about outside those constructs of um, the cops and the UN. So so for example. Um, all the towns and cities and regions and even industry groups declaring climate emergencies, they could form a global group um, that declare a climate emergency, that we want a climate emergency peace treaty. And that, that happens outside those, if those structures have been captured, mm. then we have to work outside them. So some of the, I must say, really, I think a lot of my work is in the conceptual thing is that when we reframe threat, then it changes, um, you know, it, and, and say that we can and, and allow people to reimagine how we do security, then it, it opens, it opens the, at the moment, we've only got one sort of security plan on the table. And it's the only one that you see in the media and so forth. And yeah. so there's, there is this thing that control the narrative, control the strategy. Yeah. So as soon as you put a new idea in, then, then people can compare it to the existing strategy and go, well, hold on. Um, why haven't we got any diplomats or any contingencies or any plans developing a plan E contingency and yeah. the exploring the idea of what would happen if we did partner with China, and and given that and the risks of not doing so, given that their incredible um, eco manufacturing ca capability, mm. I mean they could be they could be an enormous asset in the hyper response, mm. but you know and, I, and from the security perspective, um, I. I don't know what's happened, but I always remember that we used to develop contingencies and options. So I would think that the defence should be developing up um, an option, um, a contingency plan for plant to save planetary life and imagine well, if we're really serious about this, how could we do it? Yeah. Yeah, well, I, 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 I can imagine that your ideas are very new to most people and um you've been taken up by this princeton university press and i think you said somewhere along i read there you said you thought it was miraculous because you'd been refused publication previously what why what do you what do you think next what why has that happened that it's been refused i can see that they would be resistant because it's so novel but um where do you think your allies will come from maybe it's a better question you know where, where are the where's the support going to come these well, um, the delightful thing is that the community are, are far more interested than any of the international relations professors or anyone like that. And the and, and uh, it's been a delight for me that these are complex and difficult ideas, and there's yeah. a, there's a lot of theoretical content in them. But the fact that the community are are, are so intellectually open, I, I almost feel like they're ahead of the universities in some respects. Um, so that's been a delight. And then the other thing that's been, and now I think this thing that the people know that the systems aren't helping. So people are running around talking and sharing information themselves, which is, which is you know, the citizenry are going to save us is what I, I see. But, but also I'm finding that um, within the old systems, there are individuals and just Odd, odd people who will give a new idea a chance, like the Marines did, and even Defence won that publication. Um, and, and I think sometimes it just simply comes down to the personality of the person. So I think there are these sort of goodwilled ally people in all sorts of organisations who are still open-minded and curious, and um, and the public. Um, so that's that's what's been exciting, I think, is that it, 
the, pe the people who are interested are, are not the ones you'd expect would be interested. And, and I would say actually some environmental groups have shut the door because they can't stand anything with the M word in it, the military word in it. And so they have closed the door, even though it's a, a concept for reforming the military industrial complex. Well, yeah, it's quite funny. Yeah, no, but you've explained, I thought that too, and that's why I said it's dangerous to militarise this, but, but you've explained that it's a completely different recalibrated military force, but all of that skill and um, knowledge and discipline is intact. So that's what's needed. Just just before we go, what has the this year's events, you know, the war in Ukraine and the war or the you know the posturing in China, has that changed anything for you? Because it's taken over the media and I feel climate change has such a struggle to it doesn't it, it, it keeps getting lost as if it's stopped being a problem but it's churning on what have, what have your thoughts been over this last six months yeah i think it's it's it is this constant thing i think naomi klein wrote about it with the shock doctrine and and it's about who defines emergency and who has the power to define emergency who has the power to define threat and there's always some bigger threat that trumps um climate you know even the COVID was got far more coverage and attention than the climate crisis, but that's really just a subset of the wider ecological crisis. Um, so I think I think that this is this idea that threat narratives are fiercely disputed because um, whatever is defined as the main threat gets all the resources and the power and the media coverage at, at the moment. So that's that's why they're they're fiercely controlled. Um, I. I, I, I did the talk I did with the University of New South Wales last week. Um, one of the things I, I think as a security professional, and this is a little bit different from how others think, is that I think we have to acknowledge that we have a completely polluted sense-making environment. And so anyone who goes into security planning with a good heart at the moment has to acknowledge that the way even the Ukrainian and, and the China situation is being framed is, is probably dis, distorted and we, we, you know, it's almost like we're deliberately being kept in this state of not being able to clearly see. And I think that's a hyper threat strategy. So to keep us in a fog of confusion and distraction and looking elsewhere. And I wouldn't be surprised when you, like every, every other major conflict, when you later reflect on it, there is an oil or fossil fuel dimension underneath it. Under it. So there's a, a, a superficial narrative at the top and then there's the actual reasons underneath. And um, so I'm very sceptical about what, what that narrative, and I, I think it's ridiculous. We didn't need, none of these things needed to happen, but it's just funny that they just all suddenly sprung up exactly on the end of the, um, like as soon as we had the end of 20 years of warfare in the Middle East and the evacuation of Afghanistan, and we had a chance to reset, suddenly all these new conflicts suddenly sort of became the next most urgent thing. So I really, I question, they all could have been avoided and they're all unnecessary. And I think, you know, like you, you compare the situation with Yemen, you know, you could jump up and down and say, we need to immediately send in a force there or, or same with the Congo and stuff like that. So the, the, the rationale for why we're doing these things, I think I don't fully know it, but I'm just a little bit um, sceptical. Yeah. You say that you have great hope in a kind of a great leap in consciousness happening occasionally. And a lot of people alive now have seen that happen. There's been lots of liberation movements that have just leapt forward. Do you feel oppressed by the system that we have or immobilised by it? Or do you feel with all this um, scenario planning that you're talking about and so on, that, that it is possible that there'll be just a groundswell, a critical mass of consciousness that changes and we will leap into these solutions that you're proposing um yeah i, I think it's I, I i do feel hopeful and i i feel that that if we think of ourselves as a as a mammal as a species that we are starting to feel unsafe across the board and as a species when we you know not not take away the military people but just the human the basic human feels unsafe with this thing coming along and I think that we have you know fear and we have um 
adrenaline and all those things are designed to sort of keep us us safe. So I actually think that um, that that sort of is occurring in the background, and that itself will. Um, is part of that when we realize our eco ecological support system is crumbling around us as a species as a homo sapien that's going to force it, it, it and we're actually in that process at the moment we see it happening around us and you know when you were talking before about how on the one side you've got people arresting um, the security state arresting climate people but then on the other side launching the ambitious climate policies in some you know perhaps in america and stuff that I see that as we've got two systems sort of coexisting at the moment because we're transitioning from one system to the next. So that's where, you know, we're still in that transition messy thing where we're mm. partly doing the right thing and we're still doing the old stuff. But I, I feel like we're on the way, you know, and, um, and and just that simple, I really think that survival imperative um, will, will come to the fore. Yeah. Thank you. Let's end there. You've given me a lot of your time. Thank you. We've been talking to Dr. Elizabeth Bolton. She's the author of Plan E, which was published by the US Marine Corps University, and the links will be on the Climate Action 3CR website. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Climate Action Radio Show. Thanks also for music from Eskimo Joe in Fremantle. Their song, Say Something, is a call to action for climate and a reminder that everyone has a voice. The other music was from a film about Estonia called The Singing Revolution. Our guest today was Dr Elizabeth Bolton and thank you to her for her work on reinventing the security forces and giving the military-industrial complex a new role. As she said, one of the advantages of a security lens is that it can override economic actors and it can say, well, we trump you in this situation because security is more important than economics. Um, and one of the, the ways that could be done is with this plan E being fast and furious, you could even just have a temporary situation where you, you say, okay, for four years, we, we're going to have this sort of arrangement, which also involves, involves a universal basic income and so forth, while we more carefully reconstruct the economy um, so that that supports planetary life. I found out at the end that Elizabeth Bolton is going to publish a book of poetry called Cancelled Woman. And here, before we go, is one about a tradie. I like this one because this is where I was saved. Um, yeah. It's called The Handyman. <laughs> 3 a.m., right side flip, left side toss. Dark night sky watches from the window. Right side sigh, left side cry. Far, star, far off stars say, we know, we know. Ring that 1-800 helpline now. Nothing. There's nothing left to live for. There's not a thing that makes me sing. I find it all a bore. There's no joy anymore. Human cruelty and grasping ways. Merciless slaughter of creatures beneath the waves. I have a legal obligation to tell you that all calls are recorded for quality purpose. Oh, please, no admin now. Phone down, frown. Right side curl, left side stretch. Quiet silence. Speak, old sky. Suck in air reluctantly. Eyelids droop. Sleep at last. Knock, knock, knock. Rat-a-tat-tat. Oh, drap. COVID tracky decks. Glumly opening the door a crack. Oh, Sunshine and glory. Who, how, why for? It was the gladiator. In lockdown, I'd watch Spartacus on Netflix, but soon realised my jumbled visual mix. It wasn't a sword off his hip, it was a hammer. Hello, I stammer. Bright blue eyes, tanned and lean. Perhaps the wrong house, yet to be seen. G'day, it's Jez. Puzzlement. You rang last week about the kitchen shelf? Oh, you're the handyman. Yeah. He strides into the house. What seems to be the problem? Right side hammer, left side swoon. That guy sure lights up a room. Don't harass him or gawk, you darn fool, and get out of the way when he swings a tool. I was once in retail, he says, but it made me pale. I wanted to work with my hands and for myself. I liked it better than putting things on a shelf. I told him a bit about the PhD and Plan E that the professors and chiefs didn't want anyone to see. Plan E. What's it about? Can you explain it to me? Sounds good, he said. We need something new. And with that, after fixing the house and my faith, he said, hooroo.
That's lovely. <laughs> Terrific. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. But it's all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR, fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 8377.